Well, good to be uh, with you guys again this morning. Uh, looking forward to uh, opening God's Word with you. Uh, we're in the middle of a series studying the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is found primarily in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, there's also a, a, just a secret hidden version uh, in uh, the Gospel of Luke as well, if you're just extra curious about that. Um, but uh, we have been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And uh, even if you've never read the Bible or you've never been to church before, you've probably heard some of the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we have often said that even though the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known uh, passages in Scripture or verses or series of verses, it's also one of the most misunderstood and misused sections in Scripture. And so um, this morning is no exception. In fact, this morning's probably one of the most misunderstood or most misused sections of the Lord's, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. And you might be thinking, that's the most misunderstood? The Lord's Prayer? Like, that seems pretty normal. Uh, well, uh, we'll see what you think at the end and see if we can't make some sense of that. So um, this morning uh, we're going to tackle uh, the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I think we've all probably prayed the Lord's Prayer or, or at least heard other people praying it before. Um, but have we ever asked what that means? What are we supposed to be praying about? Are we supposed to pray like these actual exact words? Or is it more of a guide? And if it's a guide, why does Jesus tell us to pray this way? And so my hope this morning as we uh, study these is that we might gain some better understanding about where, what those things are. Um, but my hope as well is broader than that, that, we might, um, that God might use his word to help us gain a, a bigger picture of what it means and about how we should pray. So uh, let's, uh, let's pray and read the passage, and uh, we'll dive in together. God, thanks so much for your word. We are uh, so grateful for our time in it, and um, so grateful to get a chance to uh, spend time with you. And, and so, God, we just ask that you would be uh, at work in our hearts and in our uh, minds as we seek to understand and live in light of your word. And so we just want to come and submit ourselves under your authority. And yeah, God, I just feel like too, like my brain just feels like it's in a million different places right now. And I just ask that you would just help me focus, that you'd um, give my heart clarity as I seek to preach and teach, that you'd fill me with your spirit so that I have anything valuable to offer us this morning. God, we just long that you would speak to us through your word. And so we ask that you would. Amen. Amen. Well, let's read our passage this morning and, uh, and dive in. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Um, five, verses uh, 5 through 8 are a little bit of a recap of where we were at last week with Dustin's talk, but uh, I think they play really important into where we're headed. So uh, we're in, uh, beginning in verse 5 here. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and pray on street corners to be seen by others. Skip ahead just to verse 7. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when, they're, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So what is Jesus talking about? 
What is he trying to communicate to us about how we are to pray? Well, I think there's uh, one major thing that Jesus is trying to communicate, and then he kind of gives examples. Um, But I think what Jesus is trying to uh, tell the people listening to his Sermon on the Mount is that who you pray to changes everything. Who you pray to changes what you pray for, and it changes how you pray. See, the basis on which we relate to someone changes how we interact with them. There are a very limited amount of things it's okay to ask a stranger about. If you're extra brave and your wife is not around, you can ask for directions, right? Uh, Maybe you desperately need to know where the bathroom is. It's okay to ask those kinds of things, but there's a limit to what it's okay to talk with strangers about, right? You see uh, another somebody out and about, this happens to hand all the time, and maybe their kids are acting up. You don't say, wow, your kid's acting up. How is parenting going? You, you don't have a basis to talk to a stranger about that. Likewise, with your boss, you can go a little bit deeper with your boss, but uh, you know, there's still this kind of foundational level that, uh, of assumptions about how you relate. And, you, know, you can talk to your boss about projects that you're you know, working on, even about sometimes, you know, like, hey, how are your kids doing, or basic family stuff. But you don't ask your boss... Wow, that new car looks really expensive. Are you guys in credit card debt? Like, you don't, you don't have a right to talk to your boss about that kind of stuff. But as a little kid, it feels like you can ask your parents about anything. Emma asks me the strangest questions in all. I have never heard the kinds of questions. She asks me about just the weirdest things sometimes. It's like often, she, like this, this winter, like she had her uh, snowsuit on and she's like, Dad, can I wear a tutu outside today? No, child. Like you're literally going to sledding. It doesn't, you can't, it won't fit on top of what you're, it just, no. You were at Chick-fil-A. Dad, can I, can I get some ketchup to put my finger in? No, uh, you know. Well, I guess fine. You know, if it, if it makes you that happy, okay, right? But Emma feels like she can ask me anything. There's not a filter about what she thinks she can talk to me about. She just, whatever's on her heart, whatever's on her mind, she comes and talks to me about it. It in- makes for some real interesting conversations, right? But Emma never demands things from me. Because even though Emma's my kid and I love her desperately, she doesn't have authority over me. And so she asks me for things. She tries to demand sometimes. It doesn't go well, right? So it is with God, right? How we relate to God changes how we talk to him, doesn't it? It's like with anyone. How we relate to someone, the basis on which we relate to people, it changes how we talk to them. So who we pray to changes everything about what we pray for and how we pray. This morning, Jesus is going to show us that who we pray to changes those things by contrasting prayer in the kingdom of God with religious prayer and pagan prayer in three ways. And he's going to contrast the who we're praying to, he's going to contrast the how we're praying, and lastly, he's going to talk about the differences in what we ask for, or what we pray for. So, Let's dive in. So the essential difference between religious prayer and pagan prayer and prayer in the kingdom lies in the kind of God that we're praying to. When you interact with someone, the basis for that relationship changes how you interact. There are a lot of different ways I think that we can relate to God, um, but I think there are three main ways, and I think kind of everything else kind of falls into these categories in some way. Um, I think you can relate to God as a stranger, 
You don't really have a basis for a relationship with him. He's just kind of this mysterious force in the ether somewhere. And you don't, there's no context for how you're to talk to him. And a lot of times, prayer, in, when you see God as a stranger, is characterized by this like, vague hopefulness or this like, confused desperation. You can relate to God as a boss. And when you relate to God as a boss, the relationship is based on, is based on what I do for you. It's a foundation of a relationship that's based on your performance, and it's always conditional because it's about you. And lastly, I think you can, we can relate to God as a father. And when we relate to God as a father, the question is not what I do for you, the question is who I am to you. It's not what I do for you, it's who I am to you. See, the foundation of our relationship, seeing God as a father, is about God's commitment to us. And therefore, it is an unconditional kind of relationship. So let's dive in the passage, and I'm not just pulling that out of nowhere. Let's see where that's at in Scripture, right? In verse 7, Jesus is describing pagan prayer. And um, just for our time together this morning, when, when, Jesus, when the passage talks about pagan prayer, it's not talking about like weird like idol worship or something in a third world country. It's talking about kind of like... The best way to understand it is to think about it the way our world thinks about it, like this vague spirituality. Like religion is bad, but spirituality is good. And the, the idea of prayer is good, but it's just kind of some general force. And, you know, it's about like you're communing with the spiritual beings or with the spiritual realms or those kinds of things. So when the pastor talks about pagan prayer, think about it like that. It's not like, you know, it's not defining a religion, but it's just this idea of kind of this vague relationship with the spiritual things. So he talks about this. He says, Don't keep babbling on like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Babbling here is not referring to like unintelligibility or mumbling, but it's, re- it's referring to this idea of like endless and mindless repetition. It's just this, oh, droning on and on and on and on and on. D.A. Carson writes this, The term does not forbid reciting fixed prayers or repeating the same concerns, but it excludes trying to manipulate God through prescribed formulas or meaningless verbiage. He says this, The pagans of Jesus' day named all their gods and they addressed their requests to each of them, and they hoped that by constantly repeating them, they would call on the name of the God that could help them, and so they'd have a better chance of getting an answer. The RSV translation translates the word babbling as just to heap up empty phrases. It's about prayer that's all words but no meaning. See, Jesus is revealing that the pagans of his day are praying to an unknown force. It's a lowercase g God that's far off and distant and mystical and unknown. And so there's no basis for relating to that kind of God. It's just like praying. It's like you're shot in the dark. It's just like closing your eyes and seeing if you can hit something. That's, a lot of, that's how a lot of our world relates to the spiritual realms and relates to God. People want to be spiritual, but they, they're really opposed to being religious and It's this vague idea of how we interact with the spiritual forces. Secondly, Jesus kind of talks about religious prayer. In uh, verse 5, he's talking about the Pharisees. And and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, 
Um, we've been talking about the practices of the religious leaders that Jesus is confronting, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we talked about how their lives are characterized by trying to pursue an outward obedience to try to gain God's favor. And we began this series that I talked about how the key tension, the main conflict throughout the Sermon on the Mount is this, this war between gospel thinking and religious thinking. And we said, religious thinking is about, it's this belief that by our actions or attitudes or behaviors, we kind of earn or merit or or change how God sees us. We get his love or affection or we get his acceptance. See, religion, the basis of religion is that you relate to God functionally as an employee. God's your boss. Or, uh, Or like he's your landlord and you're just the renter. Right? And so if you do enough things, your boss will be happy with you. If you pay your rent on time, your landlord will be happy with you. If you work hard, your boss will be really pleased with you. Or if you take care of your property and you don't mess it up, your landlord will be happy with you. If, if you don't offend your boss by saying bad things about him, he will be happy with you. If you don't throw loud parties all the time, your landlord will be really happy with you. See, in religion, we're always trying to prove ourselves to God or we're trying to show him that we're worthy of his approval. But we always mess up because like, we, we we're not actually worthy of God's approval. We're not actually worthy of his praise. And so we always mess up and we start over at square one and it's exhausting. So you can relate to God as a stranger or as a boss. And lastly, Jesus says, you can relate to God as a father. And when you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, that's how we're invited to relate to God. Verse 8 and 9 says, Jesus defines our basis on which we relate to God when he says, our father. We're his kids. Those two words, our father in heaven, those two words, they, they radically change everything else about how we relate to God. You relate to a father totally differently than you relate to a boss or, the, or to a stranger. And so the question is not just, is God a father? But the question is, what kind of father is he? What kind of dad is God? Verse 8 says, describes who he is like this. He says, your father knows you. He knows your needs before you ask of him. God is present, involved, and concerned. He's not far off. He's not disengaged. He's not uninterested. One commentator writes this, God's not neither ignorant so that we would need to instruct him, nor hesitant so that we would need to persuade him. He's our loving father who loves his kids and knows what we need. So God's not just a dad. He is the best father of all. That, that kind of language, that kind of thinking, it might be surprising to you to think about relating to God as a father, but I guarantee you it was surprising to the people listening to Jesus' sermon. See, the Jews of Jesus' day were inclined to think about God as really high and lofty and exalted, and, and rightly so. And, and so they, the idea of having a, like a personal relationship with God was like crazy talk. They preferred to, instead of using words like father, they preferred... You know, phrases like sovereign Lord and king of the universe. And instead, Jesus calls God Father. See, in their rightful worship of God as holy and powerful and set apart, they missed God's character as a loving Father. Furthermore, He's a Father who actually has power. 
sees our Father in heaven, which means not only that he loves us, not only that he knows what we need, but he has the power to actually do something about it. That's the kind of father that God is, that Jesus says that's how we approach him. That's, where, how, that's the basis for how we relate to him. Tim Keller notes that all prayer must begin with the doctrine of adoption. See, adoption is not a result of the child's effort, but of the father's. Adoption is not a change in nature or a change in behavior. Anybody who has adopted a kid will realize that. Like people's Kids' behavior doesn't change instantly if they're adopted. But adoption is about a change in status. See, in adoption, a parent promises to love and regard their adopted son or daughter as their own son or daughter. We see a picture of this in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, love them as you love me. Jesus always gets his prayers answered. And his prayers that the Father would love us just like the Father loves him. See, God is committed to his people just as he is committed to his own son. It's the doctrine of adoption. So seeing God as a father radically changes how we relate to him. See, a stranger has no basis to approach the king of the universe, nor does a lowly employee have any reason to have the attention of the CEO of the company. But a child can come to the king with anything. See, the only person that comes and wakes up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water is a child. What would be like rude, what would be arrogant, what would be obnoxious for, for anyone else is okay for a child. A, tra- a stranger has no idea how to understand God, and an employee thinks that they should understand God and becomes angry or entitled when God doesn't act the way that they're supposed to. But a child knows that they don't always understand their parents, and instead they choose to trust them even though they don't always understand. You see, God loves us unimaginably. And he's a father who knows what we need before we even know what we need. And he's proved that he loves us by sending his son to die on our behalf. And his love for us was not just about our physical needs, but was about the deepest need of all that we had, which was a rescue from our own rebellion against him. And so God sent a rescue long before we even knew we needed one. That's the kind of God that we worship. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we pray to, our Father. You see, who we pray to changes everything. Changes how we pray. How we pray is directly linked to the who that we're praying to. And if we understand God to be a father, that really changes how we talk with him. Now, there's not a verse for this, uh, but I think there's really two fundamental things that affect how we talk with people and definitely how we talk with God. And there's two questions is, do you believe that you're heard and do you believe that you're loved? Those two things, do you believe that you're heard and do you believe that you're loved? Those two questions radically change how you talk with anyone. See, if you're praying to God as a stranger, you have no idea if you're heard because you are just shooting something into the dark. And because you have no idea even if you're heard, there's no possible way you could know if you're loved. And so it is just like this vague hope in the dark. And if you're praying to God as a boss, then you operate on the basis that you are heard, but you're not loved. 
So you have a reason to talk with your boss, but there's no reason that your boss needs to respond to what you ask him for. If you're praying to God as a father, you know that you're heard because he asks you to talk to him. He invites it. He asks for it. And you also know that you're loved because God proved it in Jesus that he died on your behalf. So you are, you are longing, you are heard, and you are deeply loved. And so if we understand that we are heard and loved, that radically changes how we talk with God. It means that we can come to him with big things and little things because we know that whatever is on our heart matters to God. And we can come to him with our failures and not just our successes. You come to him when you fail or when you are hurt, when you need someone to heal you. See, if God is your boss, you'll only come to him when you've really nailed it, when you've got something you're proud of to show him. But you'll never come to him and ask for his help to renew you and and transform you and fix you. But if God's your father, you'll come to him in your weakness and ask him to protect you and keep you safe and help you. I find that's the hardest one for me and I really like like just like prick something in my heart. There's like a conviction there because man, I'm so tempted when I fail and when I mess up to run away from God rather than to run towards him. But God's a good father and, and his love for us isn't changing on our performance. In fact, he's the only one that loves us no matter what and he wants to empower us to be different people by his love. See, if you know that you're heard and you're loved, you assume that God wants to give you what you ask for if it's good for you. Otherwise, because he loves you, you assume he'll keep it from you. As a father, uh, now I understand that. I understand that like a good dad gives his kids what they ask for if it's something that's good for them. Or he'd give them what they should have asked for if they knew what I knew. <laughs> like they should eat their vegetables because it's good for them. If you know that you're heard and you know that you're loved, you don't come to God timidly. Your prayer is not characterized by a, God, would you just, if, I mean, if you had time, God, I know I don't really, would you, if you just would, if you could just maybe answer, if, like, I, I don't know, God, if, you know, I, I don't know. I guarantee you that if Emma got let out of nursery and found her way into this room, she would, she would see me at the top of the stairs and she would yell, Papa! And she'd run straight down the stairs in the middle of everything and she would come to me because she, she doesn't care at all what you think about her. But she knows what I think about her. And she loves me. And I guarantee you if that happened and she came running down here, I would pick her up and I would hold her and I would give her a hug because I am far more concerned about what she thinks than I am about what you think. Because you're not my kids, she is. You see, the way that we relate to God radically changes how we talk to him. It changes when we think we can come to him. It changes what we think we can talk to him about. But it also changes what we ask him for. And that's the essence of the Lord's Prayer. So let's dive into those verses and see what's going on there. One commentator writes this. After we've taken the time to orient ourselves towards God and to, and to understand what kind of God he is, our personal, loving, powerful Father, then the content of our prayer will be radically affected in two ways. First, God's certain concerns will be given priority. And second, our needs, though demoted to second place, will be comprehensively committed to him. 
Let me show you what he means when he says that. Verse 9 through 10. The beginning of the Lord's Prayer is all about God's glory. Verses 9. Hallowed be your name. To, to hallow something means to make it holy or to consider it holy. It's about reverence and honor. It's about acknowledging the importance and the magnitude of God's name. And so our prayer is to be characterized by our reverence and, a, and an understanding of the greatness of God but ourselves. But it says, hallowed be your name. Not just I think about it that way, but God increasingly cause others to think about it that way. Would your name be holy and hallowed, not just by me, but by many others? Verse 10 says, your kingdom come. Not come into existence, because Jesus is there, he's talking about the kingdom, but God, your kingdom come more completely. If you remember, a few weeks ago we talked about how the kingdom of God is, is already and not yet. It's like the difference between D-Day and V-Day. Do you remember us talking about that? That on D-Day, the victory was sealed and it was sure, but it wasn't until V-Day when the, when the Axis forces surrendered to the Allies that it was official, it was consummated, it was final. And so our prayer is to be characterized by a longing for the increase of God's kingly rule, of his authority, of his victory over all things. Even though it's true of all things, our prayer is to long that it would be increasing in actuality amongst the earth. Man, I don't know about you guys, but man, you look at the world around us and like, there's just like this aching in my heart that longs for the pattern of God's kingdom to come into existence. There is so much brokenness and hurt. There is so much evil that pervades all of society. And Jesus is praying, ask God to bring about his kingdom. Ask him to bring about his rule and his reign in all things. Ask him that he would do it ongoingly in you and through you. He goes on in the latter half of verse 10 and says, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus isn't talking here about like what job you should take or what city you're supposed to live in. When he's talking about God's will here, the language that's used is talking about God's will of desire, his heart for us, his passions for us. It's that we'd become and look more like Jesus. And so our prayer is to be characterized by asking God to bring about his purpose, his desires for us, his will for how we should live and what our lives should look like is to increasingly bring that about in us. And if we're going to pray that, then that means we've actually got to know what his will for us is. Which means we've got to study his word so we know it. And it means we've got to actually be committed to doing what he says. See, the first half of the Lord's Prayer is characterized about prioritizing God. About his glory, his name, his purposes, his will. John Stott writes, We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of the world around us. When that happens, we become concerned about our own little name, our own little kingdom, our own silly little will. But Jesus' words turn these sentiments on their head. For to live as citizens of God's kingdom is to be first and foremost concerned with God's name, with his kingdom, with his will, not our own. See, prayer in the kingdom is to be characterized by asking our loving Father to bring about his purposes, to bring about his will in us and through us. But the prayer goes on because we're not just citizens of God's kingdom, we're kids of his. We're children of the king of the kingdom. We are dearly loved, adopted kids, 
We've talked about that much this morning. One commentator writes, of putting our personal needs into a secondary and subsidiary place will not eliminate them. But to decline to mention them at all as we pray is as great an error as to allow them to dominate our prayers. See, God's a loving father, and he's concerned about our welfare as his kids so we can come to him with what we need. Any parent knows that kids ask for things. So what are, if we're God's kids, what are we supposed to ask God about? Verse 11 through 13, Jesus tells us. He says, verse 11, give us today our daily bread. God, give us what we need for today. Not forever, not for all time, just for today. God, give us what we need for today. Not a luxury, not an overabundance. God, give us just what you know that we need for today. It's like a humble and ongoing dependence on God as a father. It's choosing to relate to him as a good father who loves us. God, give us just what we need for today. Take care of us today. We trust you with today. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. Verses 14 through 15 also talks about this. It's kind of like a mini commentary at the end of the prayer. And he says, and he says uh, um, how uh, we are to, if we forgive others, then we'll be forgiven. And you're thinking, wait a minute. That sounds a whole lot like religion. It sounds a whole lot like what I do changes how God thinks of me. And um, I just want to say, like, there are a lot of confusing parts of Scripture but the way that we always want to approach the parts that seem a little confusing is by seeing them in light of what's super and abundantly obvious and clear throughout all of Scripture. And so there's no way that this means that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. Rather, I think what's going on here is that God forgives only those who are actually repentant. And one of the chief evidences of repentance is that we forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. One commentator writes this, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely small. God, forgive us, just as we, by your example, forgive others. God, cause us to be people who are characterized by a forgiveness that comes from you, that flows out of us into others because we've been so greatly forgiven. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The passage often when you hear the Lord's Prayer, it goes on. For thine is the power and the kingdom forever and ever and ever and anymore. Those, uh, where that comes from, this is just a side note, but where that comes from is older manuscripts that aren't the most reliable ones, and so most of the uh, experts think that those are just added words, added later, not original words. But here the prayer ends with this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Wait a minute. God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't lead us into evil. Like That's like a, against the very nature of God. Why, why would we pray, God, don't tempt us? Don't lead us into evil. It seems kind of like pointless to pray about that. Um, in my studies this week, I kind of I learned something new. I often learn new things, but this was especially interesting. So the, the, there's a literary device that's being used here called a, a litacy. And it, the idea of a litacy is that it expresses something that's true by negating the opposite thing. 
And so it's like um, when you say, man, that pizza, that wasn't too bad. What you actually mean is like that was good. But you say it wasn't too bad, it was good. And so the same thing is happening here in the passage. So when Jesus says, pray, God, don't lead us into temptation, what he's, what he's really saying is, God, lead us not into temptation, lead us far from it. Lead us into righteousness, lead us into situations where we're not going to be tempted, but where we'll be protected and where we'll be safe. Keep us safe from the evil one. And so it's, it's an expression of the opposite. Not just God, don't tempt us, but God, lead us into the places where, it's, where, where we're right leads into the places of safety and protection. You see, God knows that the evil one is prowling about like a lion seeking to devour us. And so he says, God, lead us away from the evil one. So Jesus reveals that our prayers are not just to be characterized by a prioritization of God's glory, but also about asking our loving Father to bring about our good. You might often hear me pray, like a lot of times I'll pray at the end of my prayers and say, God, I pray that you do these things for your glory and for our good. That's not like some secret formula or like some, it's not written in any pastor's manuals or anything like that, right? But it's like an expression of my heart. It's an expression of how I see things. It's that I ask God that he would work and move and that he would, and that he would change us and that he would be at work in bringing about our desires and what we long to see happen. And my prayer in that is that all of those things, as God brings those things about, that it would result in his glory and that it would bring about our good as we pursue his name and his glory first. And so the Lord's Prayer is characterized first by who we pray to, praying to God as a father. And it changes how we pray, and it changes what we ask for. But when we think about our own prayer lives, right, they're not always characterized by those things, are they? Why? See, religious people and spiritual people cannot just start praying like Christians, but Christians often fall back into prayer like spiritual people and religious people. It's because we forget how we're to relate to God. We forget that he's a good father and instead we see him as a boss or a stranger. So how do you know how you're relating to God? There's a difference between what you know to be true and there's a difference between how you actually relate to God, right? I think one of the best ways to figure out how you relate to God is to to look at what happens when your prayers aren't answered. How do you respond when, when your prayers aren't answered? And if God is a stranger, then if your prayers aren't answered, you just keep praying. You just keep babbling. You just keep, God, if you would, God, just please, I just need you to do this. God, I don't know if you would. Just God, please do it. I don't know. Just help me, help me, help me. Or you just give up. And if God is a boss, then you either become angry or become anxious. And you're angry because you think you've been doing a good job and God owes it to you to answer your prayers. Or you're anxious because you know you have not been doing a good job and you're worried that there's no reason he'll respond to you. But if God is a father and your prayers aren't answered, you keep asking him because you know he loves you. You know that he longs for your good. And you know that he hears you, so you just ask again. And you know as well that God, you ask him that. God, I long for these things, but if that's not your heart, would you change my heart so that you'd want, so I would want what you want? 
Help me see what your heart is. Help me see your desires. Cause me to care about those things like you do. Kevin Young says this, prayer's not so much about learning how to get God to give us the things that we want. It's about learning to ask God for the things he already wants to give us. Prayer is not about learning how to get God to give you the things you want. It's about learning to ask God for the things he longs to give you. So how do you change the, re- the way that you relate to God? If you, if you realize that you're seeing him as a stranger, you see him as a boss and not a father, how do you change it? You don't. God does. And so you ask him to do it in you. Romans 5, 5 says this, because God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the spirit of God. Ask him to show you that he's a good father. Ask him to show you, like to pour into your heart his fatherly, kingly, deep love for you. Ask him that he would show you how he sees you. Ask him that he would show you what he thinks about you. Ask him to do it. He longs to do it. Or you need to ask him that he'd adopt you. Ask him that he would become your father. That he would love you and cherish you as his own kids. He's the only one that can do that, so ask him that he would. So how do our prayer lives need to change? How do the way that we pray need to change? Well, it first has to be centered on God as a father. That radically changes everything. But I hope one of the things that you notice as I talked is I use this phrase that our prayer should be characterized by, right? It's not wrong for us to pray the Lord's Prayer as it's written. But if that's the only way we talk to God, that reveals that we don't have a relationship with God. That reveals that he's just like we're just trying to repeat something to get something from him, that we have no idea how to talk to him. It's not wrong to to like state or to say the Lord's Prayer. But rather, I think it's more meant for us as an example, as a guide for what should characterize how we talk with God. Is your prayer characterized by humble dependence or is it characterized by desperation? Do you believe that you are heard and that you're loved or some combination of the both? This is one area that recently God's really been like at work in my heart on, especially when my kids are sick. And uh, I don't know about anybody else who's a parent, but when my kids are sick, there is like somehow like there's this like deep anxiety that just like feels like it floods into my heart. And I think a lot of that has to do because I I can't fix anything (laughs) that's going wrong. And I often don't know how to help them. And I find that my prayer when my kids are sick is characterized by a desperation rather than a humble dependence on God. And God's been like convicting my heart about that and like graciously showing that to me. He's asking me to remember that he's a good father and he loves my kids more than I could possibly love them. And he knows what's best for them and what is best for me. And so I can come to him and ask him, God, I pray that you take care of my kids. God, keep them well, keep them safe. Keep them from harm. But I can also ask him, God, help me to trust you no matter what's going on with them. Help me to know that you're good and that you love me and that you love them no matter how sick they get. 
God's a good father. And so we're able to relate to him out of a humble dependence, not a desperation. Secondly, what characterizes your prayer? Are, you, are your prayers about God's name, about his kingdom, about his purposes primarily? Or are they about yours? Just like think about it as you pray. Are the things you talk with God about always about you? Or are they a longing for his increase and his name? It's not one or the other, right? It's not just we only care about God's things and God's glory and don't care about our good, but it's a both and. So what characterizes our prayer? Do both kinds of things characterize our prayer or is it just one or the other? You see, who we pray to changes everything. It changes what we pray for and it changes how we pray. So let's pray together, right? Yeah. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive others. God, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, we need you. And we want most of all your kingdoms advancing. We want to see you as a good father. God, we just come this morning, and although we know those words so often, we have no idea what they mean. And God, and so we just ask that by your spirit, you would teach us what to say and how to say it. God, that you would cause our prayer to be characterized by what Jesus, his example, that we'd see you as a good father, that we'd be concerned first about your glory and not our own. And that because we've set our eyes on you, we'd know what to ask you for. God, thanks that you love us. Thanks that you proved how much you loved us. And thanks that you long, that we know that we are heard by you. We pray all these things in your good name. Amen.